Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This guest is a West Point graduate, Vietnam veteran, United States Army Ranger, CPA attorney, and the owner of two Harley-Davidson dealerships, one outside of Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia, and one near Auburn University in Alabama. His story is relevant. He's got some great advice. Uh, You're going to like this interview. Also appreciate you listening to Straight Outta Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. On this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, we have a very, very interesting guest and a guy that has served his country with valor and doing some great things up near Fort Benning. His name is John Cunningham. He's a, a Texan, originally from Baytown. He attended the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1963. And what's interesting about John, he was he was actually the first person in his family to ever join the military. We'll get to more of that in a second. He started West Point with a class of 865 students in 1967, and he was one of the 565 students who finally graduated with a bachelor's degree in general engineering and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the signal branch in our United States Army. From there, his first assignment in the Army was Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia, where he's at right now. After successfully completing and graduating Ranger School, he continued his signal training, attending various training schools in Georgia and New Jersey, and then shipped off to Germany. Shortly after, John served his first combat assignment of 12 months in Vietnam with the 101st Airborne Division. Later, John discharged with the Army in 1972 at Fort Hood, Texas, and enrolled in law school at the University of Texas, Cohorns, and graduated with his law degree in 1975 and went on to earn his MBA and CPA. Busy guy. After 25 years in the corporate world with his wife and three children, in 2000, John and his family moved to Columbus, Georgia, his old stomping grounds, where they bought a Harley-Davidson dealership, Chattahoochee Harley-Davidson located just outside of Fort Benning. Five years later, John expanded and built a secondary retail location, Big Swamp Harley-Davidson in Opelika, Alabama, just miles away from Auburn University. Today, John is a year away from their 20th Harley-Davidson anniversary. I think it's coming up. Him and his wife are proud owners of two Harley-Davidson dealerships, and I got to say I'm humbled and very honored to have John Cunningham on our show today. Thanks, John, for being here. It's my pleasure. Believe me. Well, I got to tell you, man, that's quite a resume. You know, you were serving the country at a time that, uh, you know, it wasn't popular to be in the military. And uh, I just we want to hear more about that. But before we get to West Point, tell us a little bit about the Cunningham household and what got you to West Point. Well, uh as, as I said, I didn't have, uh, I grew up in the oil fields in, in Texas, and most of my uh, family, my uncles, my father, 
all worked in the oil industry. And I guess, you know, my vision of the future as a kid was I would be working in the oil industry. So, uh, and, and I, I guess I was, I, I saw, uh, there was a series on TV back in the sixties or fifties. I can't remember exactly when. And it, it had to do with, uh, West Point. And I kind of got that in my mind that, you know, it was a, it was an interesting thing. I, I, I all I saw was, you know, the, the, uh, fictional version of, of being a, a, a cadet at West Point. And, you know, at that time we had the draft. So, you know, my, expectation was I would be in the military at some point in the future not go to West Point so that's what I worked toward uh, you know starting probably in middle school and continuing on that's pretty awesome you know you, you know so not having really military John in your background you know when you finally got to West Point I know it's not easy to get there you have to have the grades you have to have the recommendations what was the cult what was it culture shock for you I at the time I I played football. I was a, a captain of my football team and I was recruited actually. I mean, I, I won my appointment the the old fashioned way by going through my congressman, but uh, I was also being uh, groomed to play football. So I had the advantage of uh, when, the day I got there going over to one of the coaches' uh, houses and they kind of explained, don't go early on the first day. Um, and you know, when, obviously when you get there, you change into different clothing and you go out what they call the area, the dormitories are around a central, um, area. And, um, as you're approaching that with a, a, a guide taking all the, the freshmen or plebes to that area, you hear this roar of voices, and you're going, I'm sure, I, at that time, and as an 18-year-old, I'm thinking, what in the hell have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> so that was, you, and, so you were being hazed like day one. Oh, oh yeah. When you walk in, in that area, then you're assigned to uh, somebody, and the, the upperclassmen start, going after you you know what's your name no no sir you only have three ex three answers no sir yes sir and no excuse sir that's it oh no they had a fourth one sir i did not understand <laughs> well so they're drilling they're drilling in simplicity right off the bat oh yeah by the end of the day at the end of that first day you're all of you are in uniform and you go, you march to, I mean, you think about that, and, and within a, you know, a 10 hour time frame, you're trained to march in, in a uniform and go to, uh, what they call trophy point for the swearing in ceremony. So, uh, it's a, it's a very fun field day. So did you finally make it to the gridiron in West Point? Did you play ball for them? I, I did as a freshman, uh, but I've found that in the collegiate ball, I was too little and too slow. Uh, <laughs> that uh, you know, I look back and the the world or the national champions in 1963 were uh, were uh, uh, Arkansas, and their line averaged 100, I mean, 210 pounds. Well, I weighed, you know, when I got to West Point, I weighed 200 pounds. After that first two months, I weighed 175. Wow! So when football when football started, <laughs> I was. Still slow, 
but I was a lot smaller. So, uh, you know, I, I struggled through my freshman year, but then I realized that uh, football was not in my future. So after my freshman year, I, I did not uh, play. Copy that. So, so let me ask you this, John. You know, so you're you're, you're being Hayes, and I know that as you guys move up the ladder, each year is a different you know a different test, I guess, and you're getting into your curriculum. Can you think of any single time at West Point uh, that's that sticks out in your mind where something just flipped in you uh, for the positive? Can you can you think of anything? Was it your buddies? Was it class? Was it what what was going on at West Point that sticks out in your mind the most? Well, I guess the the camaraderie I had with uh you know several of the guys, uh my first roommate uh, at West Point, uh was the best man in his wedding, Dave Baggett. We luckily he he married a lady from uh, from Puerto Rico, so we had a wonderful time trip down to Puerto Rico uh to enjoy that wedding, but I you know, it's the relationships that, you know, uh, the my Closest friends there uh, were just, I mean, great guys. And we weren't necessarily the best cadets, not necessarily top in our class. But we, uh, you know, we took care of each other and we just had a lot of fun. We tried to turn West Point into a place where you could have a lot of fun. It sounds interesting. What a place, though. I mean, all the people that have graduated from there throughout American history, uh, Lee and Grant and just tons of people that that we look up to and i gotta tell you that's quite an accomplishment i mean west point is like the pinnacle to me of any of the military academies well that and there certainly is that history i mean it's there all the time and you're you're well aware of that there's no there's no getting around it as you said you know they talk about the long gray line and that certainly is emphasized that uh, you know that people have gone before you and you have a reputation uh, that, you know, the motto, duty, honor, country stays with you the rest of your life. That's awesome. It, it, John, if there's a there's a young man or a young woman out there that is, you know, going to West Point and they're preparing for it, what kind of advice can you give them as a combat veteran but also as a West Point graduate? Well, something that I didn't do that's probably a good idea, and that is uh, make sure you're uh, in physical condition when you arrive. I had been, uh, you know, I, I got there on July 1st of 1963. Uh, interesting note, uh, when I arrived in New York, it was 98 degrees. Flying from Houston, I thought, oh, man, it's really cool here. Because <laughs> it was... <laughs> you like used to the flats out in Texas, the deserts. That's you know? right. I mean, it was it was in the hundreds when I left Houston, so I thought, oh my goodness, at least it's cooler here. <laughs> um, I mean, physically fit and just uh, you know stay with it. I, I I always think that you know between West Point and Ranger School, I've been I've been taught that there's nothing you can't accomplish if you set your mind to it. And that's what I tell them. There are going to be some obstacles you run into at, at West Point, in that, especially in that first year. Um, there are guys that go that are very good athletes that may not be as strong academically. You just have to stay after it. There's there's plenty of opportunity if you stay with it. That's some great advice. So, so you, you graduated. You, you were commissioned in the United States Army as a second lieutenant, and then you went directly to Fort Benning down to Columbus? 
Oh uh, no, I had a sixty day vacation and there's another thing. <laughs> when you go to you go to Ranger Cool, it's probably a good idea to be in a little bit of condition. Uh obviously after the first uh, two weeks I was in much better condition than I was when I got there after a sixty day uh leave because you graduate in June and uh you don't start up your first assignment after it till sixty days later. So I again one of those things didn't necessarily think about that. I was more enjoying post uh, graduation, and uh, and when I got to Fort Benning, uh, it was uh, you know quite a change. Uh, you know, three o'clock reveille runs and getting ready for ranger school. Well, I would say obviously so, you love challenge. I mean, come on, man! You, you go you go to West Point, graduate, and then you. You, you go down to Fort Benning, which is another very historical military installation, and then you jump right into ranger training. What, what What's going on in your mind, John? You just wanted to be the best at everything? Well, uh, the the ranger school was something that the Haynes Committee had said. I guess that, that we, after uh, the Korean War, they didn't have the ranger school, and then they put it back in in the, in the 60s. And the decision was that every newly commissioned second lieutenant RA would go to ranger school, regardless of branch. Wow. When I went through ranger school, it was with all of my classmates. I mean, there were 500 of us. I, I mean, they broke us into two groups, but it was, you know, it was all of us going through at the same time. I don't know that they've... I don't think that's a uh, a current requirement that everybody goes through. As a matter of fact, you know, they really focus on infantry officers. I think it was a great training for me. And I, you know, when I was in Vietnam, I worked with a, a infantry battalion in the 101st. And so I certainly understood what was going on. And, and you know, I, I knew what I needed to do to keep them uh, in communication, and, and which... During that time, you know, communications was very important, and I I realized how important it was for us to always be in in touch with uh, all the units that uh, were in our battalion. Wow! So, so you went to Ranger School, graduated from Ranger School. You're a signal officer, still, you know, a second lieutenant, or were you first lieutenant by then? It, it, if you if you recall, in that time frame in the in the '60s, and with Vietnam going on. Uh, I went from second lieutenant to first lieutenant in a year, and then a year later I was a captain. That was, uh, you know, we needed uh, junior officers. We needed officers because of the demand of Vietnam. So promotions were coming fast and furious. So when so you were in Germany when you got when you found out that you had orders to go to Vietnam. That's correct. And how and how? Tell us a little bit about that, John. When you got those orders, and and how what happened? And if you if you can, you know, you don't have to elaborate if you don't want to. But tell us about Vietnam. At that, I was I had recently married, and my wife was pregnant, and uh, so you know when I got the orders to Vietnam, it was moving my family from Germany, getting everything set up. It was more focused on getting my family in a position to, um, you know, to, to be without me for the next year. Uh, at the time, my wife did not drive, so I had to teach her to drive. Uh, we moved back, I uh, moved them back to my hometown. We, you know, my, uh, 
family lived in Baytown, so we we moved uh, moved uh, them back. And uh, and I guess that's you know when I have a, a, a thought about what serving in Vietnam, the only, the the difficulty I had was my daughter was like two months old when I left for Vietnam, and she was. 14 months old when I returned. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that that bonding that you have with uh, small children, it was just never there because you missed that opportunity. You weren't there. So, you know, when I got back from Vietnam, it was kind of like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, for the people out there that are listening that aren't, uh, that don't know about deployment or how that works, you know, uh, it's a sacrifice all the way around. It's just not the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen going and ladies, but it's it's the families back home, the home front that uh, that's part of the equation. Yeah. And then during the Vietnam era, obviously, Vietnam was not a very popular war. So there were a lot of protesters and there was no sat phone. So the only way I could communicate other than by uh, writing a letter with my wife, was through ham operators. Hmm. And so sometimes you could get a ham connection at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, her time. The military, somebody put in a, a an article in Houston Post at that time about, you know, John Cunningham serving in Vietnam, captain in the Army. And my wife started getting harassing phone calls because obviously you know vietnam not popular so some people decided that harassing the family would be a wonderful way so she'd get these crazy phone calls at three in the morning well she it couldn't be you can't not answer because it could be one of my crazy phone calls from from uh, vietnam through a ham operator so that that was the you know the i understand people didn't like the war but you know again uh, trying to harass the the families, I thought was inappropriate. So I I never really uh, understood that logic. But I guess yeah, I, I can't quite figure okay. that. Yeah, that just doesn't make any sense to me. And and you know, everybody's got a view, and that's one thing we could we could say everybody's got opinions, right? Opinions and that other piece of the body. But you know, that's horrible that they did that. And God bless your wife that she hung in there and, you know, and had the daughter there raising her and, you know, doing what she thinks is right. And thank, you know, thank her for that. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about Vietnam. What, what, what you know, you're in, again in another unit that's very historical, 101st Airborne, Screaming Eagles. Right. You know, what was going on in Vietnam? What did you see, John? You know, the I was a signal officer for the 1st of 327. Infantry uh, battalion, and you know my job was, you know, and when you talk about being in combat, my job was to make sure that we stayed in constant communication with uh, the troops in the field. I mean, because the way it worked in Vietnam, the battalion would set up on a fire base where there would be an artillery uh, battery on top of a hill somewhere. And we established communication with our companies that were usually out in the the woods around us, uh, or wherever we were, whether we were in the Ashall Valley or up uh, or on the coast. And um, obviously, at that time, we moved around a lot in um, you know helicopters. And you know, I I took my tactical operations center with me everywhere I went. We got a 
a container and we put, you know, had all our radios in there. And our, you know, our good, our good, um, uh, the thing, you know, the people that work for me, uh, my, that was my major concern, taking care of them, taking care of the people that we supported, make sure the equipment was up to speed. Uh, I always remember one instance that happened when our, one of our, uh, platoons was in under fire. And, uh, you know, it was like two in the morning and, uh, came, got me and said, look, the, the, uh, the four reservers radio is not working and we can't call in artillery to support this unit. And of course, you know, I, I know that they have six radios in that unit. So my fix was, you know, at that time, take one of the other radios and <laughs> move it to the forward observer frequency. But I mean, they're under fire. They're, yeah you know, pinned down and, you know, little things like that. When you're back at the uh, firebase, you can say, look, take the other radio, turn it to the forward observer's frequency. He can communicate. Let's go. And, you know, those are the little things like that. I remember, hmm. you know, and you mentioned earlier, John, about, you know, how unpopular Vietnam was. And, you know, we've heard the fog of war and all these different terms about combat, you know, did you know what you guys were fighting for and, and what kept you focused? You mentioned your men. But, well, yeah, you got to think about it. At the time I went to West Point, my expectation was I was going to be in the military because we had a draft. And and by the way, I approve of that because I think everybody's, you know, freedom isn't free. Everybody should have an opportunity to serve their country in some way or fashion. So... But, um, you know, when I, to me, it was just, I, I, I think back at that time, it was, my focus was on taking care of the people I supported, doing my job, making sure that the guys that worked for me were safe and had everything they knew to do their job. That, that was really, and I think you talk to anybody that was in combat, their folks, their first focus is protecting their people. That I mean, that's their their goal in uh, in 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 combat is there's not these high level goals. It's pretty much taking care of business at that level. I mean, that's when I think back about that's what I was really focused on. Definitely a good point. Um, so you you survived. A lot of guys didn't come back from Vietnam, and of course, homecoming wasn't a whole hell of a lot of fun for you guys. I I got to say that. You know, your generation of, of uh, United States veterans has done a remarkable job at welcoming the younger generation of veterans. And maybe it came from that that the homecoming that you all got. You know, people harassing your wife while you're serving your country. And, you know, so you ro- you rotate back to the world. What was your transition like? Uh, it was very good. Uh, and actually, my uh, my first assignment back from uh, Vietnam uh, was to go to Fort Benjamin Harrison and learn to be a systems analyst. And uh, for the next uh, two years, I worked at uh, Fort Hood uh, on a um, software project for the Army. So I was kind of like, boy, what a change. <laughs> <laughs> God, I guess so, man. Like culture shock. Especially, you know, the jungles of uh, Vietnam to Fort Benjamin Harrison. And by now you've got how many children now? 
uh, that time I had two. Had two, uh, so ended up, yeah, and 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 I'm uh, uh, ended up we we stopped at three. <laughs> Probably a good thing, you know. But but that's that's pretty neat. So you so you ETS you you, uh, you know you left the army in 1972 and you were in Texas at Fort Hood. Correct. Right. And, and yes, I was in Texas, and I'm a native Texan. And uh, at the time, my then mother brother in law was a lawyer, and I was decided I was going to get a graduate degree in something, and law just you know seemed right thing to do so that's what i applied for and got accepted at the university of texas law school and i know how you texans are and i know you know hook them horns i got a couple of buddies that are you know ut graduates that just they're they're nuts about that team and uh rightfully so because they've got a good history too so what was law school like having you know served your country in the in, in vietnam and then you come back and you're in school did you have an edge on the competition well I don't think so. I mean, you know, I'm I'm five years older than most of the because a lot of the people that went to law school went right, you know, straight through uh, undergraduate and then into law school. So there was a retired general in my class. There were a few veterans in my class, but I mean, it was a struggle. I'll have to to admit that, uh, and they discourage you from working uh, at least that first year. Of law school, it's a three-year program, and I, I, the first semester I didn't work, but after that I, I got a job, and and uh, my wife worked as well, and of course we had the GI Bill, so, uh, and I guess I was, uh, I, I planned ahead enough that when I still was a captain in the army, I applied for and bought a house in Austin, uh, a, a very modest house, but at least I. <laughs> I had a place to stay, and I had a very uh, uh, reasonable uh, mortgage payment every month. Which you know, that at the end of law school, at least we still had a place to stay. That's, well, that's a good thing, you know. But you didn't just get a law degree; you also got an MBA and a CPA degree. And so, well, it, I got those later on. I I, I found that uh, in in I ended up practicing my first legal job out of uh, uh, law school was working for uh, the Public Utility Commission of Texas because I was an engineer, and that had just started up in 1975. They didn't have a utility commission in Texas until 1975. And one of my high school classmates was one of the commissioners. And at that time, there weren't a lot of engineer lawyers, and... um, so I was able to get on as a administrative law judge because they were doing a lot of work that required knowledge of engineering as well as, uh, uh, you know, the legal side. And so I was able to, to get on there. And then, you know, I pursued the, the business uh, all along the way. You know, I just kept uh, working on uh, getting more accounting knowledge because one of the things you do at the Utility Commission is work on uh, setting rates for the utilities in the state. So knowledge of uh, finance and accounting were important. So I took enough courses that eventually I I took and passed the CPA exam. Well, good for you. And you did it for 25 years. You were in that corporate legal world, you know, in Texas uh, for almost three decades. Yeah, well, in Virginia as well. I, I was... In Texas, and then I moved to Richmond, Virginia, where I worked for uh, Virginia Power in their 
legal department and then in their uh, accounting area as well. Well, that's pretty cool. My wife's actually from Petersburg, well, Colonial Heights, just south of Richmond, so I know that area pretty well. Um, All right. So then you must have heard the bugles, you know, sounding off because you, 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 your wife and your family and you moved to uh, Columbus, Georgia, back to where Fort Benning's at. What was going on? You, you retired well, from corporate practice? And- <laughs> well, here's what – I mean, it's really it, – it's kind of weird. You know, it's sometimes better to be lucky than good. I had <laughs> yeah. I'd given up uh, – I'd, I'd gone to work for Price Waterhouse. And, and moved to Atlanta. My uh, youngest son was in Georgia Tech uh, at the time. After working as in the energy consulting, because I had my last jobs at Virginia Power, I was a controller of their non-regulated affiliate that did all the energy trading. So I, I went to work for Pricewaterhouse as an energy consultant. And I found that the consulting business is either very busy or very slow. And so during the slow time, I put an ad in what's called Biz by Atlanta saying, attorney CPA tired of corporate world looking for a motorcycle dealership. And nine months later, after I had taken a job with Arthur Anderson in Houston and was about to move, I got a, uh, a notice from a guy, uh, a broker in Atlanta said, are you inter- still interested in a motorcycle dealership? Yes. And he put me in touch with uh, the owner down here uh, in Columbus, and I met with him. He had been an officer uh, in the Army. He had been served in Vietnam. There was another person trying to buy his dealership at that time. The fact that I was a West Pointer, the fact that I had served in Vietnam was more important to him because he'd owned the dealership for 20 years. It was like he was putting this Harley-Davidson dealership up for adoption, so, you know, yeah. and the other the other thing that I had was I had Arthur Anderson's uh, tax department helping me structure a deal that was more uh, advantageous to the uh, seller. So all those things came together, and we bought the dealership in November of 2000, moved from Atlanta down here. And I told my uh, partner that I worked for in Anderson that I wasn't going to be coming back. And he said, well, you'll come to your senses. I'll put you on a leave of absence. <laughs> right. Well, if you recall, yeah. this is in 2000. Six months later, Arthur Anderson ceased to exist. I remember. That was a big, that's a huge company. Yeah, yeah. It was a big, one of, one of the then big five confirms. And uh, it's kind of like, oh, okay, so. <laughs> Obviously, it was in the stars, John. I mean, you know, that's, right. that's how it works, say, man. You know how it works, you know. That's what I said. Better than be lucky than good sometimes. So. Well, you know, and then, the, and then the, the company Harley-Davidson, you know, I got to tell you, you know, I'm, I was a Suzuki rider. I don't have a Harley yet. I want to get one so bad, and I, and I will. Um, it's on my bucket list. But, you know, Harley-Davidson is another very historical a global brand, but they're steeped in American history. I mean, especially our military history. I think that with the Harley Davidson motorcycles, we were able to do things in combat in Europe that, that allowed us, you know, part of that victory. Oh yeah, that they're certainly well into the the uh, the World War II era. That's where a lot of the motorcyclists, you know, came about as a result of Harley Davidson supporting that effort in World War II. 
And then these guys came back and, you know, had been riding bikes in, uh, in the combat zone, and, and now they wanted them. So, and I, you know, I didn't ride a motorcycle until I was 48. You know, that's when I made that little deal about maybe I, I by the time I moved to Atlanta from Richmond, I owned three. I owned a Harley and, and two others. Uh, I, I figured when I lived in Atlanta, I wouldn't need a motorcycle or wouldn't be able to use one because of all the traffic. So uh, I sold them all. And then I kind of said, well, I really like riding a motorcycle. I got gotcha. you. So, so that's the reason I, I got into the uh, business of, of being a dealer. But one of my fellow dealers told me before I bought the dealership that uh, this idea that you'll be riding a lot more now that you own the dealership, forget that. <laughs> it's a it's a business. Is it true? Is it true? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I mean, you're you're more focused on your customers, on your employees, you know, managing everything, and you're you know the idea that you're going to be off riding all the time uh, is a, is a daydream. <laughs> I, I I hear you. You know, but you know what an iconic brand. What's it like? You know, selling Harley Davidson motorcycles, and and what's the company like? I, I tell you what, it you know over the years has changed a little bit, but I remember early on when we would. Sometimes we'd sell a bike to somebody that had been, you know, trying to afford, as you say, a Harley Davidson. And I had, I remember, I mean, there were several customers that I remember when they bought their first bike. One guy was so excited, he went into the, in the men's room and threw up because he, I mean, he was just, he was churning. He was so excited. And, and you know, there are others that have had that same enthusiasm where, that was their dream of of owning a Harley Davidson, and um, you know it's always been it's always been a pleasure. Even I mean today, different customers, but a lot of people are so still enthralled with the idea of the as you say the the history of the plan. It's been around for over a hundred years. Uh, people are still excited. They're still excited, and we. You know, uh, me and my staff really enjoy that that relationship we have with our customers. And that's awesome. And, you know, I mean, uh, it's very distinctive sound on the road. And I know that the Harley riders that I've been able to meet and even the veterans that I've met that ride Harleys, they just say there's just nothing like it. It's there's something about that rumble and something about the brand. And it's just it is exactly freedom of the open road. You know, yeah, well, yeah, I was going to say that. Different people ride for different reasons. Me, it, I always consider it splendid isolation. I could get on a bike and go down a road that I'd never, or I'd been down a hundred times, but I'd been in a car with the windows up and the radio blaring. And I would find that I'm smelling things that I'd never smelled or seeing things and hearing things that I'd never heard or seen just because I was out in the open. And I, and it, and again, I always used it when before I moved to, to Atlanta as sort of a, a way of focusing and, you know, like I said, splendid isolation. I like that. I, I think you just gave us a title for this interview, John. Um, <laughs> just saying. You know, so, you know, the, the, the word freedom, and, you know, it means many things to many different people. And you mentioned earlier that it doesn't come for free, and, and we know that it doesn't. You know, what does freedom with all the things that you've been through and the things that you've seen and done in your life, what does freedom mean to you? And 
There's a couple of questions I'm still going to ask you. You're not going to do it away yet, sir. What okay. What does, you know, what would you want people to know about John Cunningham? What kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? Which one do you want first? <laughs> Whatever one you want to answer, John. It's, it's your, it's your uh, interview. Well, you know, I, again, freedom to me is the, you know, my ability to think and act in ways that I feel are appropriate, you know, as long as I'm staying within the law. I mean, I don't, you know, I see some of these oppressive uh, countries where you're not able to e- express yourself. You're not able to uh, even think uh, or, you know, if you don't wear the right things, you can be in trouble. So uh, that that's always been my thought. And, and as far as my legacy... I guess uh, I always think in terms of uh, being the benevolent leader. I, I'm, I care about the people that work for me. They're part of my family uh, and, you know, our customers that we deal with. But I've always felt that I need to be out front. And so, you know, leadership has always been important to me. But, you know, don't, you know, lead in a way that people can follow. It's not do as I say, do as I do. So that those are the things that I I I feel that are important is that that I'm a good leader. That that's the legacy that I want to to leave behind me. Well, definitely something to shoot for and you've definitely done a good job of it so far and I know you're not finished yet. Um You know, one of the things that we see in the media whenever something happens, when somebody does something, you know, the first question they ask, you know, was it a veteran and was he a combat veteran? And there seems to be this negative stereotype. One of the reasons we even have straight out of combat radio, and I'm a non-combat veteran, but I'm, I'm a little bit tired of it. And a lot of people are, you know, what do you want? What would you, John, what would you want the non-veteran public to know about veterans, but especially combat veterans? Uh, I mean, most of the people that go into combat, they're there to to take care of the business that they've been assigned to. They're not, you know, they're not gun-toting people that are out to, you know, take lives or anything like that. They they go about doing their job. They do it in service of their country, but there there's nothing they're not different from everybody else. I mean, they're, they came from the, uh, you know, the streets of the cities or from the farms or wherever they came from. They're, they're all part of the American public. They're just a a small representation of, of the public in general. And the fact that they've served in, in combat, you know, for some, it may not be so bad, so good because, you know, as a result, they may have, you know, lost a limb or, or had some uh, psyche damage. But uh, for the most of us, got through it, uh, survived without uh, mental or physical injury and are ready to uh, continue our life. So I, I, I say give everybody the benefit of a doubt that. They've been in the combat situation. They've overcome it, and they're ready to get on with whatever's left for them in life. And you know, whatever that may be, like me. I mean, shoot, I've 
had many careers. So um, that's just one of my careers that I've, that I've enjoyed. Definitely some great points. Um, let's say there's a young man or woman out there that's transitioned out of the service and they're in one of those bad psyche places. Could you give them any advice, John? Stick with it. I mean, that's the only thing I can – I always tell people you just have to be, you know, <laughs> I know it's kind of cliche, be the best you can be, work through the problems, control the things that you can control, and ignore the rest. I mean, that's sort of been my my thought process. Control what you can control, but don't let the things that you can't control bog you down. Definitely some rock-solid advice. So – Tell us a little bit about your two dealerships, and then if I want to buy a motorcycle and I'm out there, you know, what do I what do I need to do, and what can I expect if I visit one of your Harley Davidson dealerships? Well, the 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 location we are here in um, uh, Columbus was a former lumberyard and uh, six and a half acres fenced. We have a stage out back with a covered pavilion, and uh, like. Tonight is our bike night, and we'll have a band playing out there and uh, food and um, other vendors uh, providing things. But, you know, we, we, uh, we're we constantly providing um, a location for uh, charitable events uh, in, in our community. Uh, we have, you know, plenty of motorcycles, both new and previously owned. And uh, clothing and parts and accessories, and we have one of the best service departments in the area at this location. Uh, the smaller location over in Opelika, uh, near Auburn, uh, is, you know, equally staffed with good people. My daughter actually runs that store. Um, it, it's a smaller version of this one, but it's still got new and used motorcycles, parts and accessories, motor clothing for riders, as well as an excellent service department. So, you know, our our focus is always customer first. So we try to do everything we can to uh, take care of our customers and uh, expand our customer base. That's awesome. So if a customer, potential customer comes in, they can try just about any bike that you have. Yeah, that you know, the, the only requirement we have is that, you know how to ride. We don't like you uh, test riding if you that was your first experience on a motorcycle. So <laughs> you, you need you need a you need a motorcycle driver's license. And and if we don't know you, we'll have you ride around the parking lot just to verify that you do have the skill set to do it. But uh, yeah, I mean uh, we have motorcycles, used ones that start at five thousand, and then they go up from there. But the new ones. Uh, are in the eight thousand to twenty some odd thousand dollar range for the most part. So, and Harley has its own financing, so you can get a motorcycle with ten uh, percent down, and you know finance for up to six years if you want, or eight or seven years if you want. Definitely a good deal. So, thanks for sharing that, John. Do you have any personal mantra or personal saying, maybe yours or somebody else's that? Uh, that you you know align yourself with is there anything that that just keeps you going well you know as i said the 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 motto of west point duty honor country uh has stuck with me and, and as well as rangers lead the way so 
those little tidbits of thought process, you know, you have to kind of, those kind of shape my thinking and my performance for my whole life. And they just kind of stay with me the whole time, you know, duty, honor, country. Those are the things that, you know, you hold dear. And in the ranger school, it's rangers lead the way. And it's, you know, you can pretty well take care of any obstacle that comes your way if you go out the right way. Nice. Well, John, I want to thank you for spending time with us today on Straight Outta Combat Radio and sharing your story. Uh, appreciate your service to our country. I appreciate you supporting my own little company that we've started. And all I can say is that it's men like you that have made this country what it is. And uh, we don't take anything lightly at, at, at Straight Outta Combat Radio. And all I can say is I'm looking forward to uh, to meeting you in person. We're going to be up. And as a matter of fact, we might be hanging or heading up the Ringgold this weekend uh, looking at a piece of property up there so my wife and i might move to georgia so we might be neighbors and i might get my first motorcycle from you so (laughs) so there you go so if you're listening out there appreciate you all listening to our show today uh john cunningham west point graduate army ranger uh combat veteran and the owner proud owner of chattahoochee harley davidson and also uh, big swamp harley davidson over in alabama and uh looking forward to the next conversation john thank you for being here all right, thank you. You have yes, a great sir. day. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Hey.